Leadership, equity, advocacy, powerful words and sentiments on their own, combined, unstoppable. During these unprecedented times, when the practices of inclusion and accountability are being called out and challenged, who's leading the charge and who's calling for change? Good afternoon, I'm Veronica Bezesti, and this is Culture Hub PDX on Portland Radio Project. LEAP is an arm of Music Portland, the grassroots trade association and advocacy group working to make Portland a better place to work in music. LEAP is an acronym for Leadership, Equity, and Advocacy Project, and with us today is LEAP co-director David Jackson. You might also know him as OG1, not only a DJ, producer, and author. OG is CEO of One God Productions, Inc., and founder of the Hip Hop Collective PDX, and... He's the official DJ for the Portland Trailblazers. Hey, OG. Thanks for being here. Hey, thanks for having me. Of course. Joining us as well is Music Portland Board and Policy Council member Jamie Dunphy. Jamie was Senior Policy Advisor for Commissioner Nick Fish and is currently the Oregon Government Relations Director for the American Cancer Society. Uh, Glad you could be here, Jamie. Thank you. Good morning. Thanks for having me. And last, but certainly not least, is vocalist, songwriter, community advocate, and Leap co-director, Sarah Clark. Sarah is the front woman of local soul, hip-hop, funk, and R&B group, Dirty Revival, and alongside her work with Leap, founded and is president of Musicians in Solidarity. Hey, Sarah. Hello. Thanks for having me today. Uh, Happy to have all of you here. Thank you so very much. Sarah, I'd like to begin with you. You and I had an opportunity to start this conversation during our drop-in session interview, which just very recently aired. For those of you that didn't catch it, I'll make sure to point you in the right direction so you can check that out. Sarah, how did LEAP come to fruition, and what are the overarching hopes and goals of the project? Well, I was really lucky to be brought into the conversations that were already existing within Music Portland about how to address um, equity within the conversation of the music, of within the talks of what's happening within the music industry in Portland. I believe actually that you know David started these conversations with Mira McLaughlin before I really came into play, but I had been. I've been chatting a bit with Mara here and there. And, you know, one of the things that was really standing out to me personally, and it was really nice to hear that this was something that was, has definitely not only been an ongoing conversation, but was something that was on the forefront of many people's minds was how do we address the inequity that kind of inherently already exists in the music industry and is magnified in some ways when people are focused on those conversations now, we're able to see how so many communities have been adversely affected by the inequities in our world. Um, but how do we how do we address those things, especially when in in an organization like Music Portland, which is um, you know, namely an advocate for the music industry as an industry? Like we liked, we wanted to find a way to make sure that while Music Portland is having this dialogue out there about making sure that the greater Portland world understands that the indie music industry is a billion dollar industry and needs some support that within that dialogue there are also communities um, and cultural groups that whose whose voices will go have gone unheard and probably would continue to go unheard without direct advocacy um so in that 
you know, David and I and Mira kind of put our heads together on a way to, to create something that was solely intended to hyper-focus on those communities. And that's how Leap was born. OG, do you have anything to add to that? I think Sarah uh, put it uh, very eloquently. (laughs) She covered it. (laughs) Okay. So my question that I'd like to specifically ask you, OG, this most recent Leap Third Thursday Roundtable focused on what seemed to be a long overdue discussion with the OLCC. Uh, You and Sarah were joined by OLCC Executive Director Steve Marks and Director of Compliance Shannon Hoffeditz. Talk a little bit about why that conversation was necessary and why you called it a continuation of a conversation that started years ago. Well, um, just straight to the point, OLCC as an agency, which is just one component of of a few different agencies that the same dialogue needs to happen with, but them specifically, uh, there's been a history and a perception that uh, specifically uh, amongst the uh, BIPOC community, that more pressure is put on venues, promoters, artists that are performing in venues uh, by the OLCC more than their counterparts when it comes to putting on events. And, you know, more attention is drawn to events that primarily serve underserved communities. And so, Years ago, in terms of the history of it, I've been dealing with this and, and, and working in advocacy surrounding this issue way back in the early 2000s with the fact that venues were systematically starting to be shut down if, you know, mysteriously, quote, uh, when there were large groups of black people that were at venues, it was just uncanny how you know, more pressure were put on the venue owners, how uh, events were shut down. And so it created this perception that for me, it was kind of like, why is this happening? And it left a lot of people feeling without a voice, that they didn't have any kind of way to address the issue. So I, along with a friend, a close friend, last family member of mine's uh, star child, rest in peace, mm-hmm. um, went to the city and and started having the conversation, said, why is it that it appears that you guys don't want people of color to thrive in terms of the entertainment industry here? And what I found was that it was a lack of communication. It was a lack of communication among different agencies. And so we just made it very intentional to start bringing those those agencies together, OLCC, police, fire marshals, anybody that had impact on our ability to do business, you know, mute the mute of business of music in the community. So, you know, unfortunately, uh, years after we had started doing that, I got, you know, sick with cancer. And then the following year, uh, Star Child passed away. And so everything kind of got paused at that point. And then so when Leap came back around, it's just the timing of it is that I was back, kind of getting back integrated uh, back into that platform. And so Leap came at a perfect time uh, to start, you know, kind of 
reintroducing those conversations um, again. And so, again, Mira brought, you know, Sarah and I together to said, OK, well, we need to start bringing these voices together again and start addressing these issues. When you reference having representation and dialogue from the various entities, OLCC, the police, fire marshal, et cetera, what does that look like? With me, I've I've spent a lot of years working in the community, so there's certain relationships I've I've established. So it's just a matter of calling and being persistent and and consistent with bringing the issues to light and and making sure that those entities know that we have a voice in it and 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 welcome them to the conversation because mm-hmm. during some of these these conversations, I realized that. There's a lot of perceptions that are not necessarily reality, you know, on all ends. They're in towards our community, our ends towards them. There are certain things that are true and that are valid. But most of the times, even those things tend to be put in a broad sense. OK, it's them as opposed to there are individuals that operate within those those agencies that that go rogue. And because they represent these agencies, mm-hmm. all you know we can do is say, oh, it's OLCC or it's this agency where because there's no communication, we don't know how to isolate and say, no, these individuals that are representing your agency are, you know, out of line or or or, or violating their power by, you know, saying things that there's their personal preference as opposed to what the agency represents. And so it's just, again, having those very human conversations and taking uh, titles off of 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 agencies and, and make it very human. Like, no, this person is Steve, mm-hmm. you know, not the OLCC. He's operating in a position, you know, and he's but he's a human being, you know, so I can have a conversation with a human being a certain way versus if I feel like I'm going against an entire agency. Yeah. Um, please go ahead, Sarah. Well, you know, I, I just wanted to echo some of that and like the importance of that. I think that especially when you're talking about communities that already feel so detached mm-hmm. from these like, you know, governmental agencies that kind of, um, you know, create these policies that affect them so drastically, there's a certain level of, of, of detachment and like giving the power to the people to say, hey, these are the steps you take to have a conversation with someone in these, and I'm doing massive air quotes, like entities, you know, like they're not just this broad, non-existent, I mean, there is a, there's a, there is a human aspect to it that needs to be highlighted and, and, and specifically for, for the communities that don't feel like they have um, a voice or, or know how to use their voice effectively to be heard within that space. So I, I think that that is a, one of our main goals is is to create those lines of communication or highlight those lines of communication so our people and all people can feel like they have a space to speak and that they can be heard and that their voice is valued. Right. There have been no Black-owned venues that have survived longer than 18 months in the past 20 years here in Portland. And I'm I'm wondering, and and perhaps Jamie, you can touch on this a little bit as the policy council member here. How 
do the black, brown, and or queer music communities work with agencies? And and I know Sarah and David just spoke to the human aspect of it, but how do they work with these agencies, OLCC, Fire Marshal, et cetera, in a manner that truly allows for a, a, a collective operational understanding and an inevitable success? What I'm asking is, where does the onus lie? Is it in not only understanding the rules and regulations, but is it also in understanding how those rules and regulations are enforced? That's a, I mean, that's a really good question. I think that I'm going to start with the, by saying the onus is on all of us to have our voices heard. And that unfortunately, my experience as a musician in this city, um, I spent almost 10 years trying to, to make a career for myself as a musician. And I got close, but I never made it. And my experience was that a lot of Portland's success has been accidental that Portland's music scene wasn't uh, created with intentionality. Uh, it happened in spite of the systems we have around us, not because of the systems we have. And I, my experience has also been, until Music Portland, and one of the reasons I'm so excited to be associated with Music Portland specifically, is that musicians have never had a voice. You look around the city, and there are advocacy groups for every niche uh, organization. There's a ballerinas union. There are uh, journalists. You know, there are the, uh, the Regional Arts and Culture Council will come and uh, very clearly articulate the case for potters and painters. But musicians have always been an island unto themselves and um, have always been vaguely hesitant to speak collectively. And so they haven't been at the table. And occasionally, I've been at the ta- those tables and hearing the conversations about how does the city move forward? How does the city uh, create the sort of results that we want to see by meeting other goals? And um, the reality is that if you're not at the table and you're not advocating for yourself, you just don't get remembered. It's not an intentional slight against the music musicians, but the my experience working within the giant bureaucracies is that there are so many voices that are ready to yell at you and tell you my needs are not being met. And musicians have always been sort of forced to the bottom of that pile. But in the past years, it has been certainly uh, improving. And the getting musicians to come and say that there are commonalities between us and that we aren't thriving as an industry, if we aren't thriving collectively, then none of us are going to be successful because the infrastructure that's necessary for musicians to support themselves just simply won't be there. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't believe that it's the responsibility of the average musician to understand how Title 18 interacts <laughs> with the city's policing versus <laughs> Title 14. That's not your job. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and luckily, that is my job. It is my job to understand the ins and outs of how these things work. It's it, But we need to make sure that musicians have the ability to say, this isn't right, this is impacting me negatively, and someone needs to do something. Portland and Oregon in general, we're a complaint-driven system. And that is honestly um, a relic of the old Wild West days of wanting to underfund government and only have it be a problem when somebody wants to tell you there's a problem. But it is uh, contributing to systemic racism. And it's not, a, it's not a coincidence that no black-owned or brown-owned music venues last longer than 18 months in this city. And it's because there are forces out there that make it their problem and make it their choice to 
disproportionately report music that is enjoyed by black and brown communities more than others. I was in in various rock bands throughout the years, and I've certainly had shows shut down, but never as quickly as when we also had a hip-hop act on the on the bill. And that's because of complaints from neighbors. And as long as we have a system that allows the loudest voice with the least reasonable complaint to to win the day, music will always lose out. People of color will always lose out because there's always some noisy neighbor who feels that their opinion is more important than the culture that we're trying to create here in the city. OG, you spoke in the roundtable meeting relative to the parties that need to be a part of this dialogue to to move this forward. And one of the components that you indicated that has consistently been left out but should be brought into the conversation are promoters. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah. uh, You know, if you think about how venues or events happen. You Mm -hmm. have the venues, but then you have promoters that book these venues for their events. And so a lot of times when things come down, be it from these other agencies, whether it's from noise review people or uh, OLCC or even the police, their direct uh, contact is venues. Mm -hmm. The promoters are left hanging because they have no ownership in the venue. They're just basically renting the space. So a lot of times they're kind of thrown under the bus because if OLCC comes and says something or uh, uh, police say something, it's very easy for the venues to say, oh, well, it's them that's making this happen. Particularly if, if it's a situation where a venue is out of line, if they were doing something in violation, but the promoter had no idea, it's very easy for the uh, venue owners to say, oh, it's the OLCC, or it's the police, or it's this agency. Because where does the promoter go to find out the accurate information? They only can trust what a a venue owner says. Uh, I think their voice is very important in the conversation because usually they're the ones that, you know, catch the the back end of it, particularly black and brown uh, promoters. A topic that was not discussed at the roundtable with OLCC reps was all ages access to local venues. And Sarah, you made a point of stating that that was a topic that needed its own time and dedication. There's been discussion relative to the elimination of all ages access to concerts, which in essence is eliminating access to culture for those under 21 and treating venues like bars, right? I would say so. You know, I think there's a there's a big voice here that that is missing even just in in the conversation that we're having um you know friends of noise dedicates a lot of <laughs> their time and resources and energy to figuring out ways to provide music to our youth in a environment in an, in an environment that is indicative of what what the music industry is um and so, I mean, by that, I mean, like, inside of venues, not necessarily, I mean, like, and it's okay, you know, build build your own spaces, do concert series, do the things you need to do, but how can we, how can we open this up a bit to allow, to allow our youth to experience music in, in a very real way? Uh, you know, something that Jamie said that kind of resonated with me was the lack of intentionality behind our music scene here in Portland, and that we kind of exist, um, in spite of and not because of the things we've put into place. And the situation with the youth is kind of is reflective of that in my mind, especially when you think about how important it is for venue owners or even, you know, 
I mean, like a lot of the venues that we consider venues are actually just restaurants or bars that also happen to have music. Um, but specifically for, you know, dedicated venues, a large portion of their income comes from liquor sales. And, and, and there's a lot of, you know, and I can't, you know, I want to be honest that I, although I put a lot of thought into this, I'm probably not the most like educated on this subject because it does occur to me. There's so many different like facets to it, but you know, a sold out show can, can make a certain amount of money depending on what the ticket price was at and how much the band is getting. Um, obviously artists I think should be highlighted in that dialogue, but there's production. There's a lot of overhead that comes out of that. Um, and so where does that leave the venue when it comes to profits? It's just a really interesting thing to take liquor out of the conversation. What, what is the step, you know, to, and so I, I know, so when I, <laughs> in that dialogue with the OLCC, not only had it gone on for a you know better part of two hours um, and everyone gets zoom fatigue, even, even the best of us. Um, <laughs> But I, I really, I think that that is not a quick, um, you know, five minutes of, of chat. That's like, that's definitely a, a long dialogue. And, and, and I wanted to be sure also that we had the right people there for it. So can I build on that real quick? Just that, um, you know, I started my music career in Portland in all ages venues. Uh, the Paris Theater was an all-ages venue at the day, back when I started, and there was the Meow Meow and the Solid State and all of these amazing, cool places for teenagers to go do things. Um, I distinctly remember the day the OLCC changed the rules and allowed minors to play in bars because I then got a show that night playing at a bar, and it was a very different experience. And ever since then, all those all-ages venues went away. And it isn't, an, it isn't an accident. It is a combination of uh, the business model no longer making any sense um, and a combination of real estate prices. Um, I look back on some of the places that used to be amazing all-ages venues for years, and now they are condos. Or they are right next to condos. And there's no way the neighbors would have allowed a punk show to continue to happen on a Saturday night. Um, it's not an accident that those all-ages venues have gone away. There's a systemic lack of investment. There's a systemic lack of available re uh, uh, real estate. And there aren't people investing in that. It's not um, a profitable market. And uh, because of that, no one is prioritizing it. And, and it suffers. I've, I had started my music career at 21 rather than at 16, I wouldn't have been nearly ready for the career that I did end up having. And I'm wearing a Friends of uh, Noise shirt right now, in fact, because uh, I think that that is a huge missed opportunity. And I also believe that if we don't have these spaces, if we don't act intentionally and create spaces where youth can create in a safe environment, we're going to continue to have other problems on our street. If you don't give teenagers mm -hmm. something to do, they will find something to do. And we know that creative outlets are going to be far better than getting into trouble on a Saturday night. And yet we can't get this basic level of investment from anybody. We can't get it from the private sector. We can't get it prioritized through the uh, public sector. The There are only so many things that we can do as advocates, but ultimately there's, there's a big dollar sign problem here. And I'm not sure how to solve that in the short term. We also have some incredible stages in this city that could be turned into venues right now. Um, and could be reopened as soon as ever it's safe to do so. But the lack of capital and the lack of investment 
is a serious hindrance. We have places like the Bob White Theater or the Day Theater on Foster Boulevard alone. These are 100-year-old theaters that just need a little renovation, and they would be scene-changing venues, but we can't get capital. We can't get investment. So it's a it's a it's a big problem. It's a multifaceted problem. It's also a part of what else is going on with Portland right now and how Portland has changed in the last 15 years. Let's talk a little bit about reopening venues. Music Portland Policy Council's been working toward obtaining some sort of direction, pathway, <laughs> treasure map regarding reopening venues. Um Let's let's talk about the efforts that are being made and why there has been little to nothing provided to the music community. Well, it's a hard it's hard to get a good answer on that. I don't think it is willful. I think it is a lack of ability to engage. And I think that it is not for lack of trying on our part to get the attention of Governor Brown and the uh, Oregon Health Authority. And as I understand it, it is not that we haven't done a good job trying. It's that there are so many loud voices that we've been pushed to the bottom of the priority queue. I can understand arguments there. I can understand that music is going to be one of the last to open, but guidance of any kind has been short has been short on both the f- local, state, and federal level. Again, it, it, this is really coming back to showing that our music scene only exists in spite of, but not because of, the systems we have in place. We have made do without... Uh, direct assistance from any government, and government got out of the habit of trying to help this industry at all. And from government's perspective, it isn't what's happening on stage, but what's happening behind the bar that's interesting. Hmm. I, I, I struggle with that because there was yeah. a game plan to open bowling Absolutely. alleys. You're right. There's, <laughs> there's, been, there's been specific plans for everybody, and for whatever reason, there are more concrete plans for reopening like stage plays, stage productions, and movie sets than there has been for this. And I genuinely don't know why it has been pushed down. I don't know why. But I think it's, again, part of the same systemic lack of investment. If you look at the way that the state and the local region fund the arts, music is never a part of it. No musicians get grants from from the Regional Arts and Culture mm-hmm. Council. No musicians or venues get funds from the uh, economic investments. It's we're neither we're neither an art form nor are we an economic engine. It is a true disinvestment from the government because I think they just don't think about us. I have been trying to change that from the inside. It is an uphill battle, and now that I'm on the outside as well, um, it is a continued fight, and I don't quite know what the uh what the solution there is i'm interested to know sarah your perspective and and og's perspective relative to venues reopening what does that look like to you Uh, how how anxious are you to see that happen and and what are your thoughts about why there are so many heels being dragged that's a really i think it's a and i don't want to say it's a loaded question but i just feel like the answer has so much it is. Like, I don't even it's know. Um, as a musician and as and as someone that that up until COVID, you know, ninety percent of my income was show related, and so there's and that. I mean, it was a. It's been a very strange year for that. Um, I I I'm often feeling torn between my financial needs, desires, 
Um, like what I need to be like to be the person that I know myself to be performance is a huge part of that. I'm torn between my desire to connect with my community, to be on stage and play and feel that freedom. Um, you know, obviously getting a paycheck and not having, you know, and, and working in the field I want to work in to do that. Like that I so badly want that, but safety and public safety is important conversation to have and there's been a few you know i've 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 done live streams i've done outdoor venue situations those things have always felt good there i have also been in a situation where i was in an indoor venue and it didn't feel good and not because the musicians didn't feel like they were protected but because i was worried about the other people in the space sure and like, you know, the reality of distancing and just, I mean, and, and the servers and all the, it's just like, there's, I don't know. So I guess, um, you know, having conversation and I've been lucky to be able to talk to several, you know, booking agents around the city. Um, and the realities that are need that the, the venues need too. It's like, they can't afford to open their doors at half capacity you know, like it's all or nothing. And right. that reality in and of itself right. is just like, what, I mean, how can that be? Um, you know, I like, I wish I knew what to do. I, I've heard people talk about things like vaccine passports, but inherently, I mean, there's a lot of issues. I mean, and, and by that, I mean, you know, having events where people are able to show that they've been vaccinated in order to come inside. There are equity issues even within that, you know, there's like, there's problems there. And I'm sure, you know, and I, and I know just like from, from my friends and some of the conversations I've had with specifically members of the black community, there um, is some, and, and there's pockets of, of folks within those communities that have a huge amount of distrust about the vaccine itself. So like there, I mean, there's just a, that dialogue is just so thick and hard to kind of know, like, what's the right thing. Is it, is it testing? You know, like Hawaii has figured it out. Like if you want to go to Hawaii, you have to have a negative COVID test to get on the plane. Like, do we do negative COVID tests to get in the door? I feel like, I feel like there's a lot of people in this city and beyond um, that are constantly thinking of the best way to tackle that. But meanwhile, there are bands going out on the road right now. You know, I, there's tours that are happening right, right. this moment. There's festivals that are, you know, mm-hmm. and the people are trying. It's like, I mean, there's, I can see this like push towards it, but you know, safety has to be a big part of the conversation. I will say that as I'm seeing the numbers of these vaccination numbers rise, that makes me hopeful that we're approaching a time where we might be able to possibly play music and be around each other again in that way. But for, for what it's going to take, I wish I knew. And I think that there's a lot of people that wish they knew. Yeah. OG, are you anxious to get behind the DJ board again and, and see some, some people well, yeah, well, dancing in I've, front of you? I've, I've, you know, I'm back in the Moda Center, you know, with the uh, Blazer Games and uh, actually uh, they have been testing uh, having uh, people come in and I think it's mainly like uh motor center staff as opposed to fans, but just kind of they're testing just kind of the flow of how things will work. Um, and they have a pretty tight system. So I'm okay. glad to be back in that, but it sucks not having fans 
you know, in there. It's just a big empty arena, but you know, I'm just glad to be employed. Um, I, I've done, I've done, I've done, you know, right, right. The small, the small victories. Um, I actually threw an event uh, a few weeks ago, Love Jones at the uh, whiskey uh, uh, club downtown. Um, but again, you know, it's, you know, with restrictions, people had to sit, you know, uh, um, at distance, social distancing and wear masks and things like that. And it was good to be in the space. But again, you know, in conversation with the, the owner there, it's just it's just unsettling because you don't know, like with the new restrictions that just happened from what I heard uh, from a, a having consistent work, you have to now check weekly and say, okay, hey, how does this new restriction affect the event? It's from a promoter standpoint. It's like, how can you really plan when you don't know, you know, and I got everything from Portland Black Music Expo, Hip Hop Week, you know, that is coming up in a few months. And so we don't really know how to book acts you know and and being used a certain way how are we going to do it? are we going to have to live stream it or do pre-record stuff or are we going to be able to have actual live bands in the venue and keep it covid safe so all those things are you know are crazy and i think it goes back to um uh, you know i think you know just not having a clear plan as a as a as a state or whatever like what is the process you know, instead of being reactive, because I think mm -hmm. we're we're really reactive. We tend to react mm -hmm. as opposed to be proactive. Yes. And um, and it just kind of puts us in, you know, it kind of puts people in a place where we don't really know how to trust the communication. So it leaves the door open for people to be particularly people of color to just be like, yeah, I don't know if I can really trust what you're saying. You know, you're saying get vaccinated, but. I don't know, you yeah. know, your words have been kind of unstable up until this point, you know, and you kind of your communication kind of is reactive to what's important to you as opposed to what's important to us. I would say that, like, I don't blame the government for being reactive and I don't blame individuals for being reactive either, because this is. I mean, we are still in the middle, hopefully towards the end, of an unprecedented time in our lives. And I always envisioned that there was some government agency that had, you know, binders lining up the thing. And all you had to do was go in and replace all the nouns. And all of a sudden, you have your own Mad Lib version of how you do an emergency response. And that doesn't exist <laughs> and did not exist and never existed in the first place. And so... Um, I'm not surprised that folks don't know what's going on and that the plans have changed so dramatically because we really you, – you hope that uh, government really has a better sense of what's going on and somebody is in charge and it really isn't the case. <laughs> Ultimately, we are an inherently reactive government system out in the West. Um, we, there's, I mean, our Oregon's government was based off of the old cowboy laws and – you compare to how how we run basic enforcement programs in Oregon versus how you do it in almost anywhere else um, off the West Coast. It's very telling that that's uh, we are intentionally being reactive. And I'm also, I guess, not surprised um, that everyone is, doesn't know what's going on because in early early in COVID lockdowns, they were anticipating fifty to seventy five percent of all restaurants closing and never opening again. Um, and the, uh, the worst case scenarios of our economic doom and gloom haven't happened. And we are certainly 
thankful to the smaller actions that have preserved some of these uh, businesses, I suppose. Um, and Portland, specifically to Portland City Council's credit, um, did pass a uh, funding allocation for venues, specifically. It was the biggest one in the country. It wasn't enough. It didn't come with any directions. It didn't come with a sense of what a timeline might be. Um, but you look at the, uh, you know, if you have a conversation with a restaurant owner right now, the the ping-ponging that they've been having to do with opening and closing and capacity and masks and no masks and heating and cooling and all the different problems, I'm not surprised. It's disappointing, of course, that we don't have a better sense that we're already in the late part of April and we don't have any real sense of what the the next few months may entail. But I do think, I think that that is, again, uh, indicative of how, Music has specifically been taken for granted, and we need to continue to demand our seat at the table every opportunity there we have, and to show these leaders who make these big decisions that it's not enough to be reactive, you have to be proactive, and that if you don't act with intentionality, we will lose the soul of our city, and we will lose what is so important, and that is already a natural resource that Know what, that all you have to do is preserve it. You don't have to create it from whole. We have other cities that are trying to cr- do what Portland are trying to achieve what Portland already has by acting intentionally to with these policies. And Portland is lucky to already have just a wealth of talent, and it's time for us to get that investment in that infrastructure. We need the, to know that this is a perfect example for our lawmakers to know that we're wasting away here without clear direction. And if there isn't some intention it will go away. And Portland's music scene will not survive without some intentional action by our leaders. Well said. Really, really well said. Thank you all for joining us today. Sarah Clark, thank you. Yes. Thank you so much. What a great conversation. I really appreciate it. I'm I'm happy. I'm happy. OG1, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a great conversation. Jamie Dunphy, appreciate your contribution as well. Thank you very much for having me. If you missed our drop-in session interview with Sarah Clark, you can easily go to our website, which is prp.fm, and listen to the interview and hear some great new music from Sarah. Her voice is insane. I would check it out if I were you. I would check it out. Uh, We'll make sure to provide links to both Music Portland, uh, Leap, Friends of Noise. We'll get all of those links on our website as well for everybody to have a moment to review some of the information that we talked about today and get yourself involved. Culture Hub PDX is a production of Portland Radio Project. This episode was produced and hosted by Veronica Bezesti and edited by Gordon Graham. See you next time on Culture Hub PDX.